0: this program is brought to you by stanford on itunes u at stanford university please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu
1: a genuine pleasure to introduce chris edley uh, to you all um so biographically chris uh, you know as, as i'm sure you all know joined bolt hall uh, law school at uc berkeley in 2004 after 23 years Uh, on the faculty at the law faculty of Harvard Law School, which for those of you who are involved in law probably understand maybe the world's best training for becoming a dean. Chris has actually had a a really uh, enviable career uh, from my perspective because he's managed to achieve something that I think most of us seek and and very few of us uh, actually attain. Namely, um, he's managed to have a major impact as a scholar, as an advocate, and uh, as a policymaker. As a scholar, uh, Chris has worked mainly in civil rights with an emphasis uh, on public policy and administrative law. Um, He is uh, a co-founder of the... uh, renowned Harvard Center, uh, Harvard Civil Rights Project, um, and also a widely published scholar. Um, most famously, I think, uh, his book, Not All Black and White, Affirmative Action, Race and American Values. Uh, as an advocate and a policymaker, maker, uh, Chris has an incredibly broad range of uh, experience, which he brings to the talk today, including, and this is not a complete list, um, Assistant Director of the White House Domestic Policy Staff under President Carter, Uh, Associate Director of the Office of Management and Budget from 1993 to 1995. Special Counsel to the President directing the White House uh, Review of Affirmative Action, and in that uh, role, Chris was the architect of President Clinton's famous Mend It, uh, Don't End It strategy. Uh, And also as a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights from 1999 to 2005, and also a member of the National Commission on Federal Election Reform. and let's say a whole variety of roles from which uh, to gather experience, which combined with uh, uh, Chris's academic career um, makes him a really unusual uh, person. Um, I do have to add a personal note, um, which is actually for me more important in this introduction. So when I came here also in in 2004, 2004, uh, at the same time I had not actually met uh, Chris um, before, but of course knew who he was, uh, as we all did, uh, and was actually rather nervous, and for, I don't know, about the first six months that I was here, was also incredibly jealous, because every time I turned around, there was a, a newspaper article about something Chris was doing at Bolt, uh, a news report. I was, I, it, was, it, was, it was both, uh, it was intimidating, actually. <laughs> Just, it, was, it was really fairly intimidating. <laughs> And, you know, I kept saying, I need a press agent. I was like, he doesn't have a press agent, you know. He's just doing a good job. And um, uh, it took us a little while because settling in, both of us having come here, you know, from the East Coast, uh, had a lot of settling in to do in our respective places. Uh, And when we finally got to dinner for the first time, and we've now gotten together a few times since, I will say um, one of the – Uh, best things for me about, and for my wife, about having moved out here has been the opportunity uh, to become friends with Chris and his wife. And um, I hope from that to actually begin to build some things between our two schools. But quite apart from that, I think um, Chris is one of the most extraordinary people I've met uh, and as a human being. And that becomes a very important part too in understanding what makes somebody's views and scholarship and academic contributions uh, important. So with that, let me introduce Chris Adley.
2: I'll
1: just keep it in case I want to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly. Correct. <laughs> Correctment. Uh, that, th- those introductions were really quite marvelous. Uh, so thank you very much, but it, really... You know, once you have people in the room you 're supposed to lower expectations <laughs> you're not supposed to it's really unpleasant here okay so I think the advertised title for, so thank you all for coming and and it's tr- it 's a tremendous honor uh, and uh, uh, for me to uh, to have been invited to talk about a subject that 's so near and dear to my heart um, the advertised title is, is there an echo in, it's just between my ears. No, it, should I be doing something about that? Okay, all right. Um, education is not a fundamental right, but could it be, uh, so let's just dispense with that. Yeah, I don't think so. So the real topic is how close could we get? To it, and what might that look like? Um, I suppose that's at least that's the project. That's what I what I want to move towards. So, if you mean fundamental right in some classic constitutional sense, well, if I got to pick the court, sure. But <laughs> okay, so that begs the question about what's my campaign strategy, and you don't want to hear about that. So, um, so let me. Um, uh, there's sort of a, a, a summary outline of what I'm, what I'm going to say to you, uh, just so that if you fall asleep when you wake up, you'll kind of be able to figure out where we are in the conversation. Uh, so let me start by, I want to I get to the discussion about education, but I'd like to situate it within a discussion about civil rights more broadly. And for that, I want to start by saying, where are we now? Um, and the where are we now is in trouble. Uh, but to figure out what we might do about it, let's start by thinking about well, what, how would one define the central, the, the pillars, the foundation of our contemporary civil rights construct. And I've just picked out here three elements that I think represent a consensus about what we mean in civil rights, and by civil rights, for the purposes of today's discussion, I'm talking about racial and ethnic justice, not, not every dimension of civil rights. Um, the first is that, uh, that now after these years, 50 years or so of the modern civil rights movement, uh, certainly a bedrock principle is the anti-discrimination principle, the anti-discrimination norm. Uh, I suppose what I wanna emphasize here is that Uh, The anti-discrimination principle as we understand it represents a choice. I think Leva Siegel has been particularly good, I think, in fastening on the notion that following Brown v. Board of Education, there was an interpretive choice between, to put it starkly, pursuing an anti-classification understanding of what equal protection might mean on the one hand, versus pursuing a conception that would be more purposive, that would be about dismantling color caste, that would have been affirmatively about undoing Jim Crow, affirmatively undoing the legacy of racial subordination. Uh, An anti-subordination principle as opposed to an anti-classification principle. So by eschewing a judicial responsibility to look at social and economic circumstances and say, hey, I understand which way is up and which way is down, and I can look at a piece of public policy and make a judgment about whether a racial minority is being systematically disadvantaged or not, and I'm against subordination. But that's not the strategy that constitutional law took for the most part. For the most part, it's a thou shalt not classify people by race or other immutable characteristics, Uh, a so-called neutral principle, which of course gave rise to a number of complications, none the least of which would be, I'd say, um, well, the requirement of a compelling interest in equal protection doctrine. That is to say, if government is going to try to do something in which we pay attention to race, for purposes of hiring, for purposes of, say, equalizing the performance of schools, for whatever purpose, if we are going to pay attention to race, there has to be a compelling justification for it and the policy has to be narrowly tailored. Now, what I want to emphasize for the non-lawyers, lawyers lawyers are very familiar with this, is that, by the way, how many people are not lawyers or lawyer wannabes? Whoa. Oh, that's cool. So I can say pretty much anything I want (laughs) if we take the microphone away from Kramer. Um, Okay, so let me me slide back into third gear. so under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the Equal Protection and Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause, the idea is if government, if a governmental actor makes a decision about people, classifies people using an immutable characteristic like race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, something like that, immutable characteristic or fundamental, right? The actor has to provide some justification for doing so, and it can't just be we think it's a good idea, or it's economically rational, or a majority of us want to do it this way. There has to be a compelling justification. Compelling justification. So it's a narrow test, it's a difficult test, and the Supreme Court has been somewhat persnickety about identifying those circumstances in which a proffered justification will survive strict scrutiny which includes the search both for this compelling justification, as well as a constraint on the care with which the particular policy is designed. It has to be narrowly tailored. You know, think about under-inclusive, over-inclusive, how long, it, how long in time is it gonna last? Are you gonna be careful to make sure it's achieving the purposes for which it was designed? Questions of that sort. But my central <laughs> my central point is that, uh, is that having adopted a strategy that says we're against classifications as a as a constitutional matter, it therefore puts the heavy burden on a government actor that if you are gonna try to classify, even for benign purposes, what we might think of as benign purposes, anti-subordination purposes, you have to have a compelling justification. So that's a problem. It's also a problem that uh, the courts sort of want to presume that governmental actors. right? Think of a federal court looking at a state political body. The courts want to presume good faith on the part of that political body. And therefore, there's an inquiry into the intent behind the policy. Was there a discriminatory intent on the part of the public decision maker? As opposed to saying, we're going to strike down policies even if they were simply offensive because of the effect of the policy. Well, that's a big constraint, certainly. And if you put those two things together, what it means, I think, is that by adopting an anti-classification strategy for thinking about equal protection and justice, racial justice, the promise of Brown v. Board was in significant respects bled out of it from the very beginning. It could have been so much more as a robust anti-subordination principle as opposed to this more neutral anti-classification principle, which of course over the the course of a couple of decades morphed into colorblindness as both a judicial and political ideology. A second thing that happened though as a result of this strategy was to be very careful about the interests the underlying interests or rights that were gonna be protected by the constitutional force of, uh, of, uh, of the federal courts. And in San Antonio V. Rodriguez in 1973, importantly, the Supreme Court said, you know, this, this elaborate apparatus to keep track of whether people are enjoying equal protection of the laws and so forth, um, it applies to interests, it applies to rights that are fundamental So, free exercise of religion is a fundamental right. But it turns out, a basic right to education is not for purposes of the federal constitution, a fundamental right. That's one of the holdings in San Antonio v. Rodriguez. And therefore, courts, federal courts, reluctant to look at education practices and ask, are opportunities being distributed in some way that we would judge fair? Judge fair. Again, I think I would attribute this in part to a decision 50 years ago to focus on an anti-classification principle rather than an anti-subordination principle. Now, a second major foundational element of the contemporary civil rights consensus is a norm of tolerance and acceptance of the integration ideal. Uh, Now, of course, the polling evidence, people's opinions about integration and tolerance, uh, has had this secular trend upward to the point where it's now everybody says such wonderful things uh, about uh, about racial tolerance and usually about integration and about things like interracial marriage, says such wonderful things that it's completely implausible um, and inconsistent, of course, with our lived reality, our lived experience. But nevertheless, in terms of a code of behavior, the normative proposition is dramatically different from what it was two generations ago. And that is obviously uh, no, no small accomplishment. I want to emphasize, however, that notwithstanding this norm and in integration in the education context, the history of course is a little bit different. I think as those of you who have studied this issue will appreciate, uh, while we made some significant gains in the desegregation of public schools for African Americans between the mid-60s and the early 80s, uh, that trend towards desegregation basically stopped in the late 80s and has turned around so that our schools are becoming increasingly segregated uh, by color um, as well as by income. Uh, that uh, all the goodwill in the world, well, we haven't had that. But whatever goodwill we've had hasn't been sufficient to offset the housing patterns and the other important social and economic forces that tend to be creating more segregation. Today, uh, one fact toward today, well, what I was gonna say is so, so we saw an improvement in desegregation of African Americans, now it's tailed back down so that African American students today in public schools are about as integrated as they were in, I think 1974, something like that, so there's been quite a bit of backsliding. Uh, Meanwhile, Latino students never experienced a desegregation movement, never. And today, Latino students in California are more segregated than black students in Alabama and Mississippi. Uh, so all of the benefits, social economic benefits that accrue as a result of integration, in terms of intergroup relations, in terms of economic integration, etc those have been waning and indeed never experienced for the most part by, by Latino students. Yet we have this norm of integration and tolerance. Second little, little caveat there is we've got the norm, but I think there's obviously very, very deep ambivalence about integration in all of our communities, including especially communities of color. To the extent that integration is experienced as a surrender of identity, uh, it's highly problematic. I'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. The Third key pillar I want to mention simply is progressive redistribution and socioeconomic mobility. Okay, it's right there in Martin Luther King's speeches. It's right there in Frederick Douglass's speeches. So it's there. That's a piece of the civil rights agenda. And if you scratch a civil rights advocate, especially a non-lawyer, they will talk about these issues of economics, of education, of housing, et cetera. They will talk about job mobility. They will talk about lifelong learning. They will talk about access to health care as part of fundamental elements of of the civil rights agenda. But what now? If those are the pillars, how do we assess the kind of the state of the structure right now? Well, there's a significant need, I think, for updating, for revisiting this civil rights framework, in part because we face important new circumstances. I won't belabor these. The demographic changes uh, are really quite extraordinary. It's one reason I came to California. I hear you've got a lot of that going on here, demographic change. Second big piece uh, is legal and judicial. Uh, You could argue that there was an important period during which courts were very helpful in moving the civil rights movement forward. Forget that you can argue. It's true, there was a period. Turns out it was a lot briefer than a lot of us thought it would be. Um, And You could make an argument that over the span of American history, the courts have more often than not been unhelpful rather than helpful. And certainly looking out over the next five, 10, 15 years, if I had to bet, that's sort of probably what I bet. So in thinking about what are the resources available for civil rights for racial justice work in the generation ahead, the calculation would differ today from what from, from the calculation one would have made circa nineteen sixty five. An important piece of changed circumstances, uh, but and there are changed political circumstances uh, as well. In part, demographic changes; in part, the successes of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, politics is transformed. Uh, and so in plotting what can be pursued and in what arena that has to be thought through. Second big thing to notice about what, where we are now is that not only are the circumstances changed but frankly uh, we're stalled. Uh, so let me again say three things about that. I mean first I think we're stalled in the sense that for the most part Racial and ethnic justice are off the agenda. Um, the most think the most frequent thing that happens when one tries to talk about racial and ethnic justice is that folks want to change the subject. Um, that's especially true in politics. You want to change the subject, uh, but it's even true in the research community from doctoral students advised not to do dissertations that are related to race, uh, to uh, uh, things like uh, uh, investigations of healthcare disparities uh, among medical researchers. Um, We're sort of off the agenda. And I think more importantly, or in the public policy arena, uh, well, I'll give you an example. A striking thing uh, to me a few years ago is that uh, inside the Beltway in Washington, everybody was in a dither about a patient's bill of rights. Uh, and we were going after HMOs, and we were going to fix the healthcare system. And a lot of people, basically on the left, 65% of the political spectrum, were talking about a patient's bill of rights. Nowhere on the patient's bill of rights is there any mention, was there ever any mention about healthcare care disparities about unequal treatment by healthcare providers, et cetera. Race issues just weren't in the conversation at all. Irrelevant. Partly because unpopular topics. Partly because key advocates within the civil rights community have not, in my judgment, had sufficient intellectual capital to be effective participants in the conversation. And you can say a lot of the same thing with respect to the education debates. as well, um, we're also stalled because we're politically demobilized, uh, and I'd be happy to elaborate uh, on that. But perhaps most interestingly to me is that I think we're stalled because of some more, some deeper ambivalence about some of the central challenges. For example, uh, the integration ideal that I mentioned earlier. The fact of the matter is that while we may say we are in favor of integration if pressed to say, well, what are you prepared to do in order to accomplish it, in order to bring it about, people beat a hasty retreat. Moreover, within communities of color, there's an awful lot of ambivalence, especially among younger folks about it, because the benefits seem so speculative and the costs and the disruption so great. But here I'd simply add the the historical footnote that certainly in the 50s and much of the 60s, all of those communities that, say, Martin Luther King went into He was viewed by many folks in the black community as a radical troublemaker from the outside. Uh, And there was ambivalence about the integration ideal even then, even then. Um, There's an ambivalence that causes some stalling, I think because of the underclass versus strivers kind of tension here. Uh, that goes not only to uh, a the political ideology of of, uh, of uh, if you will welfareism versus entrepreneurism, uh, but I think more fairly put goes to the uncertainty within let 's say the African American community about the extent to which our attention ought to be on how people can be empowered to move out and up versus attention to the least among us. Uh, Now, and finally I would say we're stalled because of confusion about coalition strategies, uh, cross-racial coalition strategies, uh, where again the tension between the search for an effective subgroup identity on the one hand versus a universalism can translate into, for all intents and purposes, uh, not just indecision, but actually uh, being frozen in place uncertain of what the right strategy what the right strategy is. Footnote. If you're going to talk about community-level organizing around education improvement, the ambivalence around coalition strategies, especially multiracial coalition strategies, who gets to lead, who gets to define the agenda, who has the authority. This is absolutely crippling because if communities of color can't get themselves together to act in coalition fashion, then who indeed is gonna define the agenda? It won't be them. Now, I think that there are cross-cutting interrelated issues that explain current difficulties with the civil rights movement. And I I identify three here. The deficit in intellectual capital for policy design that I mentioned briefly. That is to say, if there's going to be, if there's going to be a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, or amendments to the No Child Left Behind Act, if people concerned with racial and ethnic justice don't have both the access to participate in the policy debate and the intellectual capital to actually have something to say when they get to the table, then we can't really expect much progress, can we? The deficit in intellectual capital then becomes an agenda item not just for advocates, but also for scholars, also for institutions. Are we producing the ideas that can have an impact, and are we being intentional about constructing a pipeline, a bridge, a conveyor belt that gets that intellectual capital in usable form to those in the outside arena, in the private sector, in the public sector, in the advocacy community, who can actually put the intellectual capital to work. If we don't do that, look, engineers think about doing that when they're doing research and trying to figure out how technology is going to influence society, is going to influence business. They think about the pipeline. All too often, scholars working on issues related to racial and ethnic justice, they don't. They don't. That's a huge problem. The second is this exhaustion of the anti-discrimination paradigm, by which I mean both the intellectual exhaustion and the political exhaustion. The intellectual exhaustion, because as I suggested, it has within it a self-defeating, a crippling constriction that keeps it too far removed from an anti-subordination principle. Now, it certainly helped us make a lot of progress for the past 50 years. But I simply wanna say that to the extent you want that progress to continue or accelerate, it may be that continuing to ride the anti-discrimination paradigm isn't gonna give us enough juice. That's the proposition, as an intellectual matter. As a political matter, though, we run up against the moral exhaustion of Americans who simply don't believe that discrimination continues uh, to be a powerful force or that its legacy remains as lethal to hopes and aspirations as I believe it is. And we therefore need to augment, to supplement the anti-discrimination paradigm with something additional. And the final explanation I'd give for our stalled circumstance is the poverty of our values discourse. And I want to circle back around and talk about that at the end. But look, race, it's about values. It's about values. At least as much as any other problem you can talk about. And we can dress up our disagreements about means, but even those disagreements turn out to be about values, in my judgment. That's one of the things I wrote about in my book. That terrific book that I did, I should say, which, you know, you should read it, it will make you a better person. Actually, just buying it will make you a better person. Um, um, Okay, so then, uh, anticipating the discussion of education, which is what you came to hear, what might be some elements of a reconceptualization? I won't say the reconceptualization. I won't claim that this is total, et cetera. But let me just suggest a couple of of pieces of it. One very important, it seems to me, is in light of the exhaustion of the anti-discrimination paradigm, is to think about the extent to which we focus our strategies on uh, acute issues of remediation versus more structural issues, some of which might be prevention oriented. I mean, for example, you could contrast an acute intervention designed to give, this student, the procedural due process they deserve before they're disciplined in a school, right? And we could argue about the right balance between the civil liberties of that individual student and the managerial imperatives of the school, right? Or we could take, and we should do all of that, right? But in addition, there's this question of whether we conceptualize the school to prison pipeline in a way that frames a discussion about what kind of structural interventions will disrupt that pipeline, so that the disciplinary, the the sort of the acute, the incident of school discipline is seen as part of a broader process that puts so many black and brown kids ultimately in prison. Or, another example, at a policy level, you could think about an acute remedial intervention like a categorical grant program for more bilingual teachers or teacher's aides, or you can think about a structural intervention that seeks to somehow transform the state and local politics of school finance and resource allocation. A bigger, more strategic effort than something that focuses on this a particular I won't say band-aid because that sounds dismissive, but a, but a, but a particular response to an acute, uh, an acute difficulty. So, first point, remediation versus prevention or acute versus structural. Second point, fault versus reengineering. Now, think about an automobile. Okay, so you have an automobile and the automobile's not working right. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. One way to think about this, at least for a lawyer, is to try to pinpoint some negligent actor who screwed up when they built it or screwed up when they designed it and sue the bastard. No, and, and, but, but you know, fix that problem sort of that way. Another way to think about it is, hey, the car's not doing what it's supposed to do, we got a problem here, let's re-engineer the car. It's kind of a focus that says how do we fix the problem as opposed to who can we find to blame for creating the problem, and let's go after that individual. Um, Now, the important point about the engineering approach is that while I will adamantly insist that blameworthiness continues to be vitally important as a moral and political instruction for society, um, as well as for instrumental reasons of, of deterrence uh, and remedial compensation and redistribution, et cetera. The search for the morally blameworthy actor can be a distraction from the question of how do we engineer a solution to the problem? Um, No Child Left Behind is a great example of that and I'll be there in just a moment. Last point I wanna make is that especially once you move to this engineering strategy as opposed to the fault-finding strategy, then what we might mean by the notion of a right to quality education can take on sort of a different meaning because instead of just being about the search for some malfeasor some who is, has violated your right, it becomes an inquiry into how do we engineer systems, how do we reform institutions in order to achieve a vision of performance and equity and quality which we could wrap in beautiful ribbons and call a right. Another way of thinking about it. There's a continuum between the purely precatory to the purely sort of aspirational and hortatory, all the way to the incentive and all the way to some automatically enforceable entitlement that is ironclad, platinum, standard, world class, you got this as much as you've got a right to breathe. So what we often do in lots of public policy domains, at least if you're not a lawyer, is you write something that is so aspirational and so unenforceable that you may want to call it a right, but it's worth sort of the tissue paper that it's written on in terms of practical consequences. Or maybe a sort of a step beyond that, it's so ringing and it's so inspiring you call it a right, but actually it only has force to the extent that people feel moved, inspired to incorporate it into their pro- their norms of professional behavior. And, uh, and sometimes they violate them, sometimes they don't. Um, so part of our challenge in thinking about the right to a fundamental education or quality education is to try to move as far as we can along that continuum from the purely aspirational, precatory announcement of, no child left behind, to something that becomes ultimately more enforceable some way or another. Obviously I think about enforceable in court, but you could imagine other kinds of enforcement. Maybe the market enforces it, or maybe politics enforces it, but different ways to enforce a normative proposition. That's what we're after. Okay, so having said all of that, Let me talk about the education example um, a bit. Um, So here I could talk a little bit about No Child Left Behind, but since everybody here can spell NCLB, um, I won't belabor what you already know. There's some key elements, uh, quite obviously, of the statute, um, but uh, what I really want to do is uh, is what's next here. Uh, so I want to talk about three. I want to give you a series of uh, got some headlines, uh, and then I want to talk about the danger that's captured by the headline, and I want to talk about the possibilities, and then I'll wrap up. Uh, Appomattox Redux. Well, sort of. So here's what bothers me about education and civil rights. I thought we fought a civil war. And I sort of thought I knew which side won. Okay? But it turns out, it turns out that states' rights is so deeply ingrained in the way people think about education policy that, well, makes me sick. It is ridiculous how deeply ingrained this. This is the 21st century. Is that right? Yes, this is the 21st century, and we have a 19th century model of local governance by 15,000 school boards uh, composed of amateurs. I mean, God bless them. We need lots of volunteer help. One, right? But the, but but you think about the problems of running our schools in the 21st century, right? From the diversity to the financing issues, to the global competitiveness issues, and we turn it over to 15,000 panels of amateurs? So we've got this difficulty that states' rights threatens to trump this collective national ambition, whether you call it No Child Left Behind or you call it a fundamental right to education, or whatever, because you wanna take three steps and the first thing you have to contend with is, is is local control, is local governance, is local tax bases, and then maybe there's the state government. It's, it it This is a problem, and if 50, 50 years after Brown be Board, if you want the next 50 years to be markedly different, this has to change, this has to change. And we nibble away at it with grant-made programs, we nibble away at it with sort of state regulatory structures, and I'm sure school boards don't experience life as though they've got all the freedom in the world to do whatever they want. I understand that. But still what I'm suggesting is that the responsiveness of local administration of education to national aspirations of quality and equity are sorely lacking and the obst- one of the key obstacles is states' rights. And it's not a right-wing thing. I had conversations with one two it was sort of at least three presidential candidates extended, huge arguments with this is that was in 04, huge arguments with Al Gore, huge arguments with Bill Clinton uh, on on these issues and the deference to state and local decision making uh, from people who want to be call themselves the, the education president is is uh, well, let's just say it's it's at least an anachronism, I think it's worth. So what's the possibility? The possibility, of course, is to respond to this by more effective, well, the way I deal with my little children. Um, sort of, it's threats and bribes. And, the, and from a legal standpoint, the difficulty with the threats and bribes, right, if you take the money and therefore you must do, if you agree to take the money, you must agree to do X, Y, and Z. Um, the difficulty is that the threat doesn't work if the enforcement is flaccid. If you're never really willing to apply the sanction, or if the sanction is ill-designed, so it's a nuclear weapon, then what's the point? So if we're gonna have a solution, if we're gonna have a solution to the state's rights problem, then uh, we've gotta be a lot better about the way we engineer the threats and bribes. Let me also say that on No Child Left Behind in particular, the stuff that you hear from both sides of the aisle but especially democrats those are the ones who irritate me the most cuz you know it's supposed to be my people and you know this notion that no child left behind says you're supposed to do a b and c but you know we haven't given them enough money to do it you know and that's the problem well look I mean so put, there's one argument about whether a b and c are the right things to be trying to do okay but the argument that we shouldn't really expect it to work because the federal government hasn't paid for it strikes me as nuts. When somebody says unfunded mandate with no sense of the history of that term as a conservative right wing attack on the national government uh, on civil rights. When somebody says no child left behind is an unfunded mandate, as a lawyer, what I say, what I believe is Unfunded mandates, so what? Lots of things are unfunded mandates. The First Amendment is an unfunded mandate. Right? Due process is an unfunded mandate. Now, we, if you want to have a conversation about which mandates should be unfunded, that's fine. But, you, but you're not against all unfunded mandates. Which, let's have a conversation about which ones we should be for, which ones we should be against. Right? And so, but it runs into the state's rights problem. That's, that's, what's, really, that's what's really going on. My own view is this is incredibly important. And if states and localities want this responsibility, then here's what they've gotta do, and they should do it whether or not we bribe them into doing it. That's my view. That's how I feel about the First Amendment, too. Plessy versus Ferguson, after all, meaning that that decision in 1896, separate but equal, we thought was done away with with Brown v. Board of Education, But it turns out that this local control thing, combined with the housing patterns, has increased more segregation, has produced more segregation in the last 15 years. And the waning political and moral commitment to integration means that we have de facto segregation, a new kind of de facto segregation that's rooted in localism. Again, if we're for integration, Localism has become Jim Crow. And I don't think equity band-aids are gonna do it. What's interesting, the civil rights possibility within No Child Left Behind, focusing on measuring and closing racial disparities in achievement, holds some possibility, it seems to me. In part, moving on here, Bull Connor is dead, so that the visible symbol of America's racially discriminatory attitudes is not there. But the no-fault regulatory rights represented by No Child Left Behind are an important counterpoint because the notion there, right, is here's a school or here's a school system, here's the, here's, here are the racial disparities or the language minority disparities in achievement The command of the statute is you must make adequate yearly progress in closing that gap. And by the way, we're not looking for who's at fault. We're not trying to find some blameworthy agent. Uh, We're simply interested in engineering a structural solution to the problem. Now, this kind of renovation of the anti-discrimination paradigm, or perhaps it would be better to say this kind of augmentation or supplementation of the anti-discrimination paradigm strikes me as an absolutely vital development. We need, there are a lot of things we need to clean up with no child left behind, but we cannot, in my judgment as a civil rights matter, abandon the focus on racial disparities and the consequences, the consequences, when states and localities Fail to clean things up. Last point I want to make, which is especially important for this kind of audience, is this: I'm, I am frequently in conversation. My my favorite hobby, my favorite hobby is uh, going to meetings, participating on committees of the National Research Council of the National Academy of Science. Well, actually, sailing is my favorite hobby. But my second favorite hobby is going to these National Academy of Sciences things. And uh, and so what is striking, and I'm sort of always there as the token lawyer, the token policy wonk. Um, and uh, it's driven home to me in those circumstances of even more than it has been to me during my stints of public service, the radical difference between these the two worlds: the world of researchers and the world of policymakers. In particular, the radical difference over the question of what constitutes evidence and what constitutes proof. right? So the picture is, and I've had this happen to be in, in, in camp, I'll uh, uh, give you a ex- great example. 92 transition, I was a senior advisor for, for, for Clinton during his economic transition. I was having a series of meetings on what to do about housing policy. And I had these meetings and I, I had read some literature about the Gautreaux experiments in, in Chicago, which probably many of you are familiar with. Um, So this idea of giving a portable voucher so that somebody could move out of public housing to a neighborhood that had good schools and better employment opportunities, and then seeing, it turns turns out there's pretty good evidence that there were great outcomes. So then I get to OMB, and I'm in charge, nominally, of HUD's budget, among several other budgets. And I said, look, I'd like to take the Section 8 program and completely revamp it. And turn it into a portable voucher program like Gettrow. And my staff went away, and they came back with the HUD staff, and they said, "Well, we think we should do some more pilot pro- projects, pilot programs." And I said, "No, no, 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 no. We know enough. This is good enough for government work. Let's do it. Twelve billion dollars. Look, I figure I'm only there for a couple of years, you know. Let's go. Let's go for twelve, $12 billion dollars." And they come back, and they say, eh, "They whine," and I said, "No, no, no. We know enough." Let's go. So they came back, we put together this, sorry, right, not 12, but six billion dollar thing. We sent it up to the hill, actually made some progress, but well, the rest is very sad, so I won't, go, I won't go into the details. But here's my point. If you go to education researchers, you know, folks like you, and say, God, what do I do about problem X? What they'll say is, well, you know, there are only three things in the universe that have a treatment effect bigger than a tenth of a standard deviation. And even those things, we haven't done a randomized controlled experiment. So I really can't tell you what works. You know, I'm just not sure. But, by the way, if we did a couple more demonstration programs, <laughs> but if I'm rushing to the floor of the House of Representatives about to cast a vote, right, what I wanna do is turn to the expert and say, give me something. Right? Tell me something. right? I'm about to send up the HUD budget. I got 30 billion dollars to spend. Are you saying you can't tell me anything about how to spend it a better way? Because you haven't done enough research yet? Give me something. So the, the scientist is in a trap that says, I can't say two plus two equals four unless it, you know, I can get it down to, to sort of 98% confidence interval. The pol- politician is saying, I'm gonna make a decision, give me something that's better than flipping a coin or throwing a dart. Part of our challenge here, okay, so no child left behind. Right, no child left behind is, okay. I want everybody to be proficient. How long should it take? Right, I'm George Miller. I'm Ted Kennedy. I'm George Bush. Right, I come to the experts and say, how long will it take? All right, and you're going to say, well, everybody can't be proficient. And I say, okay, well, so what should I say? Ninety-two percent. So it's no child left behind, asterisk, except for 8% that we will say. That it's okay to leave them behind, but no, let's put that issue to one side. Okay, everybody's gonna be proficient. Tell me how long. Tell me how long. Okay, you can't get education researchers to pick a number. But I gotta put a number in the bill. 12. So there's a number, 12 years they say. Education research community goes. Oh my God! There's no way. We know of no structural, no systemic education reforms that will produce that much progress in that short a period of time. This is science versus hope. I'm legislating, or I'm a civil rights advocate. Twelve years. Oh my God! I mean, my five-year-old is in kindergarten for one year. Well, this guy maybe two years. if 12 is not the right number, tell me what it. Tell me it is. Okay, so we really, if we're gonna deliver intellectual capital that will be useful in the world, we have to find a way to be good scientists, absolutely, but also ways to communicate to people who know how to operate or who need to operate with broader confidence bands, okay, with, with more uncertainty. It's the difference between being a physicist and being an engineer and there's a way to be intellectually rigorous even in approximation. Uh, So let me close with this. I think that there is an absolute imperative that we revisit, that we renovate some of the pillars of civil rights. Because with the pillars that we got, um, we're not going to make enough progress fast enough. I feel a special sense of urgency because of the demographic changes sweeping the country, and because on so many indicators in education and economics, etc, there is a frightening picture. You look at NAEP scores for 17-year-olds and the dramatic racial disparities there. Those are 17 years old, 17 year olds, right? 15 years from now, these folks who can't do basic arithmetic are supposed to be breadwinners for families in a global economy. This is a disaster. So I feel some sense of urgency about renovating the civil rights structure and addressing the issues that we described. But I want to tell you that lawyers and policy wonks share a problem, um, and it's to some extent uh, illustrated if I can t- just sort of tell you one quick war story. And this is when I was uh, when I was working in the Carter administration. Uh, in the late '70s, uh, I was about 12 years old, and I was in charge of uh, I was in charge of welfare reform. And uh I landed in this job right out of graduate school. I spent a, I spent a year working with a group of sub officers putting together Carter's incremental welfare reform policy. And one day I went up to the Hill with my boss, Stu Eisenstadt, to lobby a moderate Georgia Democrat. And he let me give my pitch about this $12 billion welfare reform proposal. And at the end of it, he said, uh, well, young man, that's... That's really quite quite interesting, but I have to tell you, I'm not hearing anything from my constituents about welfare reform. just not okay, so lesson number one, all politics is local and the, but anyone, who's not, and moreover, he said, I think that if I talk to my constituents about it, most of them would think that welfare reform means spending less money on poor people, not more money. so I don't think I can help you, and of course. Since I was twelve years old I didn't have anything to say to him at that point and I went away and I was thinking about it and I thought about it, it took me a couple of years uh, thinking about it and uh, and here is, is sort of the part of the problem um, I was talking about a national minimum benefit guaranteed benefit. I was talking about payments cash assistance for two earner families I was talking about the food stamp asset limit. I was talking about the earned income tax credit. I was talking about the Medicaid notch and the benefit reduction rate. The other side was talking about out of wedlock births, the work ethic, the deserving versus the undeserving poor. They were talking about values. And I was talking about policy plumbing. So a few years go by and there's a Democrat running for Congress on a campaign platform of let's end welfare as we know it. And liberals woke up one morning and the welfare entitlement was gone because we'd been talking about policy plumbing. Other side was talking about values. Now when I did affirmative action, the White House Review of Affirmative Action, Clinton wound up with mend it, don't end it. And I was always struck by the sort of the miracle that the slogans weren't flipped, right? It could have been, let's end affirmative action as we know it. And welfare, mend it, don't end it. But it wasn't. And I actually think we sort of dodged a bullet in civil rights. We dodged a bullet because truth is, since Martin Luther King was murdered, for the most part, lawyers and policy wonks took over from the preachers, and we've been talking about policy plumbing. We've been talking about equal protection doctrine, and we've been talking about ESEA reauthorization, and the other side has been talking about values. We dodged a bullet, but I think it was a temporary reprieve. If we don't do a better job of reclaiming values discourse in one way or another, then we will be in even deeper trouble. Period. Paragraph. So that poses a problem for folks like you and me, right? We're not, I'm not a preacher, in fact I'm pretty irreligious, truth be told. And yet I know that my skills as a lawyer, as a policy wonk, your skills as policy wonks, as researchers, are absolutely vital in creating racial and ethnic justice. And yet in some sense, if we try to lead as technocrats, we're dooming our own efforts. So the hard thing about our roles going forward is how to play a vital contribution, this indispensable contribution of producing the intellectual capital. While at the same time recognizing that leadership is multidimensional and a leadership that is divorced from values discourse is very likely on an issue that is about values to flounder. So here is my thought. Probably more comfortable for lawyers than perhaps for non-lawyers, but you sort of learn first year law school. When you're arguing things out in Socratic dialogue, when you do your first moot court exercise, you learn the importance of really trying to understand your opponent's argument almost as well as you understand your own argument. Well, similarly, the peer review process in research Forces you to come to terms with the objections that people have to what you believe. What we have to resist as we're trying to produce intellectual capital that will make a difference on issues of race and ethnicity, what we have to resist is the temptation to only work on these problems and talk about these problems in communities in which we're basically all on the same page. We're talking about it with people whose values, whose perspectives are pretty similar to our own, and that can be. Well, it's certainly valuable. I, I call it choir practice. Right? We're, practicing, we're practicing the harmonies. We're singing together. And it's very nourishing. It's an important thing to do. But we also don't need to do this missionary practice, in which you're trying to work very hard, because it is hard. I always say race is not rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. Right? Rocket science, put a person on the moon, 10 years, boom, done. Right? Race hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we still can't get it right. Race is harder than rocket science. So if we're going to, what we need to do is the the missionary practice of engaging people whose values and whose experiences are very different from our own. Missionary practice, not choir practice. And to do that, I think both lawyers and researchers need to start with an exercise that I think of as searching for the kernel of truth in what the other side is saying. You search for the kernel of truth in what the other side is saying, unless they're a sociopath, because then you're in a position of insisting that they do the same toward you, and that's the beginning of building a bridge. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. To speak to trying to escape the questions
0: by going ah, on. To, okay the questions
3: tend Just to be a too couple hard couple of questions so Th- thanks very much for coming I uh, taught in a, an inner city high school in Washington DC before coming to Stanford and of uh, in our senior class only five percent of our students beat a thousand on SATs and uh, so for me, there's no, and the entire student body was African-American. So for me, there's no question that education is the primary issue in civil rights that we need to be talking about. My question is one of policy plumbing, which is how do we get more good teachers into tough schools? There was a uh, report released in September by Education Trust West yep. a policy group um, showing that in 12 of California's largest districts, there are massive um, uh, disparities between teacher salaries um, within the same district between rich schools and poor schools. And it seems to me as long as you have this uh, locked-in salary structure across a the district, then any, uh, you know, a school in a poor neighborhood can never give any kind of incentive to attract good teachers. doesn't matter how much Title I funding they have. Um, they don't have any leverage. So I'm right. wondering if you agree or have other ideas on that.
2: Right, no, I have lots of ideas, but I'm sure, since I'm in California, that whatever the answer is, it's going to require a ballot initiative. Uh, <laughs> sort of a really, um, and then another one to fix it, and then, uh, that's the industry to invest in. Um, okay, so I don't have any brilliant, I, well, maybe I have a few brilliant ideas about that, but, uh, but they're, they're, But I don't want to talk about. That. I don't want to talk about it. So, so we could talk about the compensation issues. We could talk about the working condition issues. We could talk about uh, uh, how you grow the labor supply uh, in terms of credentialing or in terms of, of creating uh, uh, part-time positions. And I mean, there are, so there are all kinds of HR strategies and compensation strategies that one could talk about. So, but so can I. I want to abstract away from that and and, and make another point. And that's and that's the following. No Child Left Behind is, in in some respects, it's falling between two stools. There's the one stool, there's, there's there's the old stool that says, we've got an idea about how to fix schools, let's write it down and try to make people do it. There's another stool that I think is better illustrated in some other areas of regulation in which you deregulate the means and try to focus on accountability for the outcomes. Right. Now again, as somebody who teaches administrative law, which is about government regulation, I think about education, please don't be offended, as an industry. The question for me is, how is this industry similar to or different from other industries? And what should our strategy be for regulating this industry? So I remember having arguments with colleagues at the White House and with President Clinton about the inclination to be, in my judgment, overly prescriptive. I used to accuse the president of acting like he wanted to be the, you know, the nation's superintendent-in-chief by kind of figuring out specifically what ought to be done to, to fix the roofs in schools because of the capital problems in, in school districts around the country. You know, ridiculous, he doesn't want to be the superintendent, the, the nation's superintendent in chief. Um, on the other hand, what you do care about is achievement. And so, uh, so I, say, I think of No Child Left Behind as caught in a movement towards a different regime in which we're saying what we want is improvements in achievement like the gap clo- closing. And we'll make some investment, not all, because you've got to be partners in this, state and local government. But here's the goal, here's the, here's, here's, here's the outcome, we're holding you accountable to it, now you figure out how to get there. It's gonna mean, among other things, devising compensation strategies and HR strategies that will put the best teachers in the toughest challenge, in the toughest challenges, right? And the way you go about doing that in one school district is gonna be different from what it's gonna take to do in another school district. And in fact, it may mean getting rid of these district boundaries for certain purposes, indeed, so that HR can can, can. But again, from a Washington, from a national aspiration standpoint, the key question is, can I build a moral and political consensus, hopefully informed by research, about the nature of the aspiration, and then deregulate the execution, the implementation uh, of of it? The highly qualified teacher provisions in No Child Left Behind are sort of this complicated combination, right? So the notion is we want to make more great teachers, highly qualified teachers, but then, you know, we write down what we think the definition is of a highly qualified teacher, or we substantially write it down. It's arguably a little too prescriptive. But then interestingly we say, we build in some safeguards and we say to the district, by the way, as you're adding more highly qualified teachers to your payroll, we're gonna insist that poor schools, poor students, minority students, get equal access to this pool of highly qualified teachers. That you don't just concentrate them in your best schools, right? So we build in some equity stuff. I think that's, I think that's terrific. But it's this weird caught between two stools, two stools.
4: one more yeah. hi, thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Um, I think I have the unfortunate pleasure if that's what we would call it of being both in in law school and in policy school so Great. I think I'm, I did that I think I'm doubly screwed by yeah. what yes, exactly. by, um, <laughs> by the standards uh, you know laid out here.
2: is there a divinity school here <laughs> is
4: there? maybe that gets to the heart of the question the divinity school issue um, I'm kind of concerned about the idea of the, this final idea of your, the dialogue issue, because frankly, there's a feeling, a broad feeling among the progressive left that dialogue has gotten us nowhere in the past ten years, and that even um, you know since Harry Reid took over, that actually standing up for what we believe, you know, by saying values, you're right, you know, on the values front, is is much more successful. So um, I guess m- maybe I'd ask for your reaction on that. And, and second, for um, those of us that are still in school and not yet researchers or policy wonks or lawyers avoiding the values discussion, um, I was wondering if you could give us you know, two or three areas where you see the most opportunity for growth in specific places where we can devote our intellectual capital to.
2: Oh, God, you know, it's always a mistake to take one more question. <laughs> um... Okay. Well, so on the on the on the first question, look, you know, don't get me wrong. I am not a kumbaya kind of (laughs) guy. That's not my point. Um, My point is that if I want to be effective as a vehement advocate for what I believe, I have to understand what makes Ward Connerly tick. I've got to understand why what he says appeals to Joe Sixpack. And what, you know, some friend of mine says turns him off or scares him. Okay. And then I can make a judgment about what my right, what the right political strategy is. So I'm not, so, so I'm, I'm saying that, that, uh, that, uh, you have to be skillful. Th- th- so there are two things that you're doing. you know, I've debated, I debate. I on Ward. I've debated Ward Connerly a lot, um, and I have a healthy respect for him, uh, as much as I disagree with him. But understanding what he's saying that has a particular resonance informs my judgment about how I talk about the issues so as to kind of blunt the effectiveness of his argument. Does that make make sense? So that's really what I'm I'm suggesting. Because there's a lot of folks out there who don't know what they think. Who don't know what they think. And so I'm competing with him to try to appeal to the undecided, the, 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 the swing voters. So I'm not saying at all compromise. I mean, I've got a poll star. I know where i 'm trying to go uh, but uh, uh, but i 'm also a sort of a consequentialist i 'm a, I'm a utilitarian I want to pick a strategy that 's going to get me there effectively and in order to do that i 've got to be informed by and i 've got to participate in the values discourse so, so let me turn to that let me, let me let me turn to that that um, Uh, well, obviously, I think that it, as a broad matter, it, investing in the in the in the education issue is 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 absolutely cre- critical. I think, as a small technical matter, one of the critical pieces of work that we've got to do over the next few years with regard to the education right idea is to think is to try to work lawyers and researchers together. Try to think through what does equity, what does equality mean? That is to say, how do you measure it? How do you define it? What are the variables? How do you measure it effectively? And how do you set up an incentive structure that's not overly prescriptive to move people in that direction? And we need to think about equity in its many senses. within a school, between schools, across districts, within states, nationally. We've got to reach some moral consensus informed by science about what the pole star is. So that's a research project that we're actually undertaking. I should do advertisement for I was at the Harvard Civil Rights Project we've just launched. The Chief Justice Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity uh, at, at, at Berkeley. We're trying to engage uh, many of these issues, um, uh, and I hope you'll be hearing a lot more uh, about it. Let me just close, though. So there's kind of just a sort of a policy domain that I think is very rich and and critical. I, I'll just add one last point about the values. Uh, a few years ago, we did a, we did a conference. Um, on religion and civil rights, um, and it was sort of uh, it was, insp- and and we did it because of another because of an experience I had with Clinton, when we were doing the White House review of affirmative action, and I just had a 90-minute discussion with him in the Oval Office, uh, a group of four or five other senior aides, and we were talking about some aspect of the affirmative action issue, and we've been arguing back and forth. I was doing my Socratic thing with him. And we got to the end of this complicated discussion. meeting was over, and he said, you know, this whole discussion reminds me of something I was reading last night in my Bible. And he got up, and he went around behind his desk, and he opened the drawer, pulled out this Bible in microscopic print, and thumbs through it, puts on his reading glasses, and he finds this passage, I don't know, in St. Matthew or something, and he reads a couple of verses, and it was exactly on point. I mean, it was amazing. And it was completely authentic. To me, a fairly a very irreligious person, but it was completely authentic. I mean, it gave me a sense of his groundedness in a value sense in the in the positions that I was teasing out of him during the Socratic debate over whether you could hire teachers, whether you could fire people in Piscataway, New Jersey. In a, um, And I thought that was really cool. And then I went away, and as you know, in the middle of the night it occurred to me, but wait a minute, wait a minute. That was in the Oval Office if 20 feet away we'd been in the cabinet room, and we'd been having a discussion about the Department of Justice budget. And I was wearing my OMB hat, and I'd been arguing with the Attorney General about the size of the budget for the Bureau of Prisons. And somebody said, "Oh, that reminds me of something I read in Scripture last night." And you know, here's the answer. It's in St. Matthew. You know, quoting Thomas Aquinas, maybe that would be okay. But you know, going to Scripture and something feels wrong about that. Okay, so we had this conference, and, the, and with faith leaders from lots of different denominations who work in the area of racial justice. Very interesting conference. And the question for them is how, since our disagreements about race and opportunity are so often about values, and since 90% of Americans have access to values through their spiritualism and through their religion, the question is, as civil rights advocates, how do we use faith now that Martin Luther King is dead? How do we reclaim that part of the discussion? All every To a person, every single one of these faith leaders, working in issues of of civil rights, said that they were called to this work because of their faith. But on a day-to-day basis, the way they execute the work, the way they work with people to get them involved in racial justice projects is completely secularized. Completely secularized. So we've got this disconnect that the technocrats and the lawyers go to the faith community for three reasons, one, There's a free basement you can use for meetings. Two, there's a free mailing list. And three, maybe you get a rabbi or a preacher who is an articulate community leader uh, to go to city hall with you. But we don't tap any of the theological resources. The conference was interesting but ultimately a stalemate. We've drifted so far away from a sense of how how, how to engage the broad public in values that even people in the faith community are uncertain about how to do it. That is a big problem. That is a big problem. So everything I said about the right to education and we ought to work on what the right variables and indicators are, that's right. But an even deeper deeper problem is how do we reclaim the values debate and marry it with the science debate? That's really hard. And it's not gonna happen out there in the field it's going to happen in places of learning, in places of thinking uh, like certainly Berkeley and maybe Stanford. Thank you again.
0: <laughs> I don't want to get too close to you because, okay. Um, if you think that Dean Kramer was intimidated, at least if he made a call, uh, he could expect name recognition, but I couldn't expect that. and. Uh, Uh, I did call our speaker with trepidation prepared for, at best, a, well, I'll check my calendar. Um, I just want to say that in addition to being a brilliant man, he's a very generous man, and immediately said yes, he'd be delighted to come and talk to us. And I'm so glad that he is so generous with um, his time because it was truly an inspiring presentation. As a token of our thanks, Dean Edley, we have a bottle of Stanford School of Education Wine. Um, and I would, I would recommend, because it is truly excellent wine that you would drink that just with your wife, you don't want to share it. But we also have Stanford School of Education wine glasses, which I know you will want to entertain all of your Berkey, Berkeley <laughs> colleagues with for many years to come. Thank
1: you. So Super many, nice. many thanks.
0: So please join us now for some reception for some refreshments. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.